The failure to act with sufficient ambition to avert the climate catastrophe will be the greatest moral failure of our time. Making changes takes courage, and if we don't change things, we won't have a future. I'm an environmentalist. A lot of people don't understand that. I think I know more about the environment than most people. You have stolen my dreams and my childhood with your empty words. Change is coming, whether you like it or not. Zero Carbon East Off. Hello and welcome to Zero Carbonista. I'm Ian Collins, although that is largely irrelevant. This series of podcasts is essentially about views, thoughts, campaigns and ideas of one man and a plethora of guests along the way. Dale Vince is an entrepreneur who's built his success in the green energy sector. He's the owner of Ecotricity, the world's first green energy company, an area which he identified years before it was remotely on the political agenda, let alone dominating world events. He actually built his first windmill in 1996. In addition to that, he's the man behind Forest Green Rovers, the world's first vegan football club, where he sits as chairman. On each episode, we'll be bringing you the latest salient issues from the biggest agenda on the planet right now, the environment and climate change. It's not a subject that's easily dodged these days, Dell. although listening to some politicians, you might be forgiven for thinking otherwise. Yeah, I, th- I think from my point of view, politicians... They pay this issue lip service and Extinction Rebellion and the school climate strike, uh, you know, they've they've raised uh, the profile of this so incredibly in the last few months. All that's really done it, I think, is increase the amount of lip service we're getting from politicians. Our own government is is the best example. Theresa May was desperate for a legacy before she left office. So, you know, the UK has set itself a, a target to be carbon neutral by 2050. But we don't have any policies in place to achieve that. In fact, we've got the opposite. We've got a ban on onshore wind, no support for uh, that or uh, solar power. We've got 20% VAT on home solar panels, but 5% on coal. We're continuing to subsidize exploration for oil and gas in the North Sea and, and pushing fracking and, and so on and so on. You know, we've got the opposite of the policies that we need, but we've got politicians saying, yeah, yeah, we get it. We know we need to do something. Let's get it done by 2050, which is like, you know, how many generations away? So um, from what I understand, 2050 is kind of too, you're sort of over a tipping point then, right? Oh, it's it's way too late. I mean, the global scientific consensus is we've got 10 years to uh, get a grip of this, to avoid the very worst effects of climate change, to actually avoid it becoming out of our control. You know, at, at this point in time, there's a chance that we can control it. If we can cut our emissions, we can reduce carbon in the atmosphere, you know, we could avoid the runaway versions of climate change that some models predict um, could happen. Uh, 2050 is so far out as to be almost unbelievable. It's like, well, what planet are you living on if you think that we've got the luxury of 30 years to do this? So which bit, uh, and this is where I'm, con- I think a lot of people listening to this will be confused as well. You think, let's take Boris Johnson as the obvious example. So here's a bloke that wants to be, he wants an election and he wants to be re-elected as the Prime Minister. And because of what we know about Boris Johnson, he doesn't want one legacy, he'll want two. He'll have to want to beat his old school buddy Cameron, for example. He wants to be in office for a couple of terms. So now that takes it up to the 10 years. So y- you would kind of think it was in his own interest to really focus on this, really give it some resonance and some prominence. Boris Johnson is so desperate for power that he'll throw anybody and anything under the bus to get it. 
Right now, he's prepared to throw our entire country, our economy, under the bus through a no-deal Brexit. That's what he promised to get elected as leader of the Tory party. That was his route to becoming prime minister without yet a national uh, general election. And he doesn't care for the consequences of that because what he gets from that is to be prime minister. He's got his foot in the door. He's now preparing to fight a general election on the basis of setting himself against the courts and against parliament in a kind of populist people versus the establishment uh, false narrative. You know, I mean, this man is ultimately completely cynical and narcissistic. Uh, it sounds familiar <laughs> to a bloke across the Atlantic, uh, and only interested in uh, in what he wants. Climate change is too remote and too distant and too big to bother this man. You know, because what he wants is is what's right in front of him. The keys to number ten. We'll come to the bloke across the Atlantic shortly and, of course, what's been going on with the prorogation of Parliament and your involvement, interestingly, in that side of things too. But just, just a point on his legacy. Would he, is he not, though, Dale, shooting himself in the foot kind of here? Because ultimately, if everything does follow, as the science says, 10 years before what is going on environmentally is out of our hands as a race, as a global race then, I mean, his legacy is shot to bits. There is no legacy because he'll be seen as the bloke responsible. So you'd think even from a self-interest point of view, he might want to get on board a little bit on this. Well, I'm not sure that the legacy matters to him as much as the here and now to to have that power to be the prime minister. He's already achieved that, uh, albeit perhaps we can hope temporarily. I, I don't know that he's he's after a legacy. I think he wants to stay in power. And uh, that seems to be the the most important thing because it defies all logic to campaign for a no-deal Brexit and all of the great harm that that will cause. No logic at all. But isn't he d- doing pretty much? You know, I was looking at some of the leaders across, uh, just take Europe, for example, within the EU, whether you look at Merkel, whether you look at Macron, and a lot of these shortcomings in terms of what they're doing in terms of climate change are kind of reflected in other countries too. So in that respect... Johnson isn't sitting alone in his inaction. No, and I don't think he's been in the job long enough for us to you know, judge him for having been uh, inactive. I mean, he's part of a Conservative Party that have been in government for 10 years now, and the things I listed earlier in this conversation, the policies that are wrong are Conservative policies. He's been a part of that government that put those in place, so we can judge him for that. But it is too early. I think fundamentally there's a mismatch between the way politics works. Our electoral cycle, once every four or five years we have an election. Politicians' horizon for getting stuff done is necessarily very short. And climate change is this massive issue Mm. um, that, that, you know, is is working, functioning on on a, a larger scale and to a longer term horizon than than a political career. Uh, let's say. And so the two are mismatched. Which party is taking this seriously then, Dale? Because obviously the the, the obvious answer is the Green Party, the the names on the tin. Um, (laughs) The the Lib Dems, of course, claim rights on this one too. And Jeremy Corbyn has spoken out quite a lot on it. So where would people find a home if they are serious about listening to the arguments about climate change? Well, there's a lot to say there. Uh, I think the Green Party, as you say, 
the names on the tin, you'd expect them to have the right approach and the right policies. I think they definitely have the right principles. Whether they've got the right policies, I don't know. But their fundamental problem is, is our first-past-the-post political system. And the chances of actually getting a green government if you vote green, well, you know, they're vanishingly small. It's just not going to happen. And we haven't got time, actually, for the Green Party to build... Uh, the number of its MPs from the one currently to the 300 required for a majority. We haven't got time for that. We haven't got time for electoral reform either, uh, which was uh, a ball dropped by previous government. Um, Lib Dems, they were the part of the coalition government that shut down wind and solar and, and uh, promoted fracking. You know, I think it's questionable the extent to which they really get it. They have a different leader now, so fair enough, but they still have the same problem as the Greens, that uh, we've got a first-past-the-post system. Some people call it a two-party system. It's Labour or the Tories. They're the parties that can form a government. But the good news is if you look at the policies of the Labour Party, I think they've got it. They talk about a green industrial revolution. A lot of the policies they've unveiled up until now and are planning to are very good ones about how we repurpose industry away from fossil fuels towards renewable energy, how we create jobs in this sector. And uh, they're just far more ambitious and practical on this issue, I would say, than any other party in Britain today. So you think at the, at the moment the, the signs are that a, a, a Labour government would, would, would take this more seriously than any previous government? And arguably, just looking at the terrain, the political terrain across Europe and the wider world, arguably more so than many other governments around the world. No, I think that's right. I know that uh, Labour Party will ban fracking, for example, which we desperately need to do to, you know, to just end that argument and move on. Uh, they'll uh, lift the ban on onshore wind and um, you know, create an industrial policy ar around, uh, around green industry. Uh, these, these are really important things to do. There's a lot of minutiae as well that's got to go along with that. Uh, so we haven't seen the full extent of it, but I think they've got the most progressive and, uh, and correct approach to what we need to do to tackle climate change. Let's come right up to date then. Extinction, rebellion, the big uh, protests that have been taking place. Let's just take a moment to hear what our own Prime Minister thinks about some of those protesters. <laughs> My own team didn't want me to come to this event tonight because they said that there were some uncooperative crusties and protesters of all kinds uh, littering the the road and they said there was some risk that I would be egged. So there it is Dale, you're a you're a crusty. With a nose ring. With a nose ring. With as well. a nose ring, yeah. yeah. I think it's disgraceful actually um, but not out of character for Boris Johnson to talk like that. I mean this is the man that talks about Muslim women as if they're bank robbers or letterboxes. You know he talks about people with watermelon smiles from bongo bongo land you know this is a racist sexist homophobic um, man you know born into privilege that spent his life in privilege and expecting to be in power um, so uh, we shouldn't expect less of him really um, to denigrate basically citizens that are so concerned about the future for their children that it forces them onto the streets to protest, to camp out in London, to get themselves arrested, glue themselves to the roads, all sorts of really, I would say, desperate uh, but honourable uh, acts of protest. When we think of kind of environmental protest, we all think of 
um, Swampy. Remember, remember, yeah, do. Yeah. remember him, of course. <laughs> yeah. He was kind of like a one-man band, this guy. Or it seemed that way when I was a kid, looking at this guy on TV, and there he was, you know, tunnelling away, making his uh, his points known. Uh, but he was also written off as this kind of wayward, sort of mad, lefty, hippie character. Therefore, the wider media saw him as, as an irrelevance. And th- the reason I mention him is because when you look at what's going on with this Extinction Rebellion today and the kind of people that are on their streets. I was listening to a heart surgeon being interviewed the other day. There's a vicar churning himself to the floor. There are school teachers. There are people from all walks of life. This does seem to transcend uh, stereotypes, a class, age, race, and religion. Yeah, agreed. I mean, this is the people, uh, you know, giving giving voice to their fears around climate change and the lack of action from our government, which is why I think it's just so so disgraceful and cavalier of, of Johnson to dismiss them uh, with these kinds of slurs. In terms of the wider impact, then, what, what do you think it's doing, Dale, Extinction Rebellion? Is it, is it working? It's on the news every night. Is it, is it working? I think it's working. It's raised the issue beyond anything we've ever seen before. Um, you know, obviously it's making the news, as you say, but the idea of bringing cities to a standstill, blocking roads and that kind of stuff... You know, that's really got people aware and thinking, what are these people doing? And as you said earlier, you know, these are everyday people from all walks of life that feel compelled to take to the streets. And that in itself is is reinforcing the impact of Extinction Rebellion. It's like a snowball effect when you see that. And, and I think they've done a fantastic job. What we need to come out of that is a plan of action and a government that gets it and does something about it. But this is the first step to raise it as the most important issue of our times. What about those arguments, blocking roads, can't get to hospitals, potentially causing disruption, cab drivers can't make a living? You've had all the all the kind yeah. of arguments. Yeah. What, what, what is the response to that from a, an environmentalist's perspective? I, I think it's easy to exaggerate and colour the risk of blocking roads and stuff like that. Obviously, it could happen, and if it does happen, that's a bad thing. I get that. But look, let's hold that up against the fact that 40,000 people a year in our country do die because of air pollution. That's a fact. They die. They don't just get to hospital late. And air pollution is a part of what's driving climate change. It's the burning of fossil fuels in power stations and in cars, particularly in cities. This is an acute problem. So we have to hold that up, uh, as well as the bigger picture, massive species extinction that we're facing and uh, potentially runaway climate change, which is going to impact not just millions, but billions of people on this planet. And in terms of protest, it's absolutely right we mentioned this girl. People are suffering. People are dying. Entire ecosystems are collapsing. We are in the beginning of a mass extinction, and all you can talk about is money and fairy tales of eternal economic growth. How dare you? What do you make of this incredible 16-year-old, Dale? Yeah, I'm in awe. She tells it like it is. She's gained incredible media attention, and she's used it well. I mean, uh, you know, her message is simple. Uh, it's blunt, super direct. It's unarguable. And it's not something that people are used to having. Um, you know, I, I particularly love her message <laughs> to the grown-ups. Uh, I think it was delivered in a speech to the UN, saying, you know, you, you need to, you need your children to tell you this. She's right. Grown-up politicians, in particular, are not dealing with this issue in a grown-up way. 
I just, yeah, I just thought it was incredibly powerful that it was, I mean, it was little over a year ago that she was sort of outside her own house with a placard and some leaflets. Yeah. And fast forward 12 months and people in a factory in Tasmania are coming out on strike in support of what this girl said. Yeah, incredible. She's really cut through. Uh, with a message, and and I do think that this combination of uh, of Greta, the the school strike campaign, and the Extinction Rebellion, has been a really powerful cocktail of the last few months. In particular, um, I mean, Extinction Rebellion is a global phenomenon as well, and it fills me with hope actually that uh, that this issue is is going to get dealt with. We'll come on to the very antithesis of all of this and Greta by mentioning the T word across the Atlantic in a few moments. But before all of that, let's go back then to uh, Boris Johnson, Dale, because we we touched on a lot of things there. And and, and you wear a few hats in terms of your your opinion, shall we say, on the Prime Minister, not just the environmental issues. There's obviously what's been happening with Brexit and the proroguing of Parliament. And along with Joe Morn QC, you, you've been doing quite a lot of work that's reached the, the, the heights of our legal system now. Yeah, that's right. We had a judgment from the Scottish Court, I think, which is the peak of it for now. Um, it'll be quiet now, I think, uh, unless we appeal, but I don't think that's probably going to happen. I haven't had a chance to talk to Joe about that yet. But uh, I think it'll be quiet now until the 19th when uh, Boris Johnson is meant to uh, send his letter to the EU asking for the extension. And and basically the court have said they'll be watching. Okay. well, let's bring Joe in. How are you doing, Joe? Yeah, I'm very good. Thank you. So just explain then in in kind of Fisher Price terms what's been going on and how you wound up back at the, uh, the, the court in Scotland. So Boris Johnson keeps saying, um, number 10 sources keep saying, we will leave the 31st of October, leave the 31st of October come what may. And I just can't understand how that um, can happen consistently with the law. So um, with Dale's help and alongside Joanna Cherry, with whom I often work, we brought proceedings um, to try and force the Prime Minister to uphold uh, the law that Parliament had passed, um, I think only last month. Uh, That law requires him to send a letter asking for an extension and to accept an extension if one comes back. Um, And what the court has held is that, in effect, they are worried that Boris Johnson might not send that letter. And so they've um, arranged a hearing for the first working day after the 19th at midday for an hour. Uh, And if Boris Johnson hasn't sent the letter, um, they will send it for him. Right, so that's now a, that, that's now legally rubber stamped, is it? The court will send the letter. Well, that's my that's my expectation. Okay. So they are sitting at twelve noon on the twenty first. Um, they do know that's what we're asking them to do, um, and they will uh, consider that course. And and uh, I mean, all the signs are they will take that course um, on the twenty first if Boris Johnson does send the letter in the meantime. And, and Dale, just explain then how you ended up working with Joe on this. What, what, what was happening to take you into this uh, sort of unlikely direction in some respects, given your, your, your initial background, as it were? Actually, it's my initial background that, um, that probably brought me here because I was sat watching the news over the last few weeks and I think it, it peaked a couple of weeks ago uh, with the Ben Act being passed by Parliament, which is meant to protect us uh, from a no deal. This is just before Boris Johnson shut down Parliament unlawfully, as it turned out. MPs managed to squeeze that act into law and uh, was hearing, you know, Boris Johnson say basically he didn't care. We were coming out, come what may, he'd rather die in a ditch, all that kind of stuff. And thought this, you know, this has to be wrong. And my background as a traveler, environment protester 
had given me an exposure to injunctions. I knew how they worked. I knew what they were for, uh, essentially to prevent some uh, reasonable expectation of, of law breaking, I would say, and some harm that would be caused by that. And I said to our, our guys here, our legal guys, look, we must be able to seek an injunction against Boris Johnson and prevent this. And so our guy Tom uh, reached out, uh, spoke to Joe Leon, uh, and he was of the same opinion. Um, and we joined forces to make this happen. And, and Joe, on the, I'm on that point. So you didn't arrive sort of by the, the sort of lawyer's cab rank uh, scenario. You, you came at this because you had an interest in it too. Well, I mean, I've taken a number of uh, Brexit cases. So I was involved in the first Miller case back in 2016. Um, I brought a challenge to the Electoral Commission over its mishandling of um, vote leaves overspending. I brought the Whiteman case that established that we could unilaterally revoke Article 50. Uh, I brought the prorogation case that proved um, that Parliament had been unlawfully suspended by the Prime Minister um, last month. But, you know, uh, a government minded to behave like this government is minded to behave can't be left alone. Uh, and it did seem that the government was bent on breaking the law. So I'm involved in these cases as a as a campaigner for good governance. I'm involved in them as a, a petitioner. And, um, you know, it was terrific for me to be able to work with Dale, who's got, you know, a really powerful voice and, you know, strong media reach um, and, and, you know, just somebody it's it's nice to stand alongside. Yeah, I thought it was rather interesting that, you know, if you're given some of the sort of extreme Brexiter arguments about we, we have no power... The EU tell us what to do at every level. We can't make our own decisions. We've got no sovereignty because it's all in Brussels. Our courts are impotent because it's all in Brussels. And then, of course, this I think it's a sort of magnificent trio of cases and parliamentary debate that has kind of proved the absolute opposite to all of that. That, in fact, we do still retain all of these areas of influence and ability to legislate. They are alive and well and still in the UK, even though we are still part of the EU. Well, I think that's, I think that's right. And there's a pretty rich irony for our prime minister to be asking Hungary or Poland to help him keep the United Kingdom out of the European Union, um, especially in circumstances where our own Supreme Parliament um, has said that uh, he shall do everything he can to obtain an extension. You know, that's not taking back control, that's um, giving it away to Hungary and Poland. It's fair to say you're not on Boris Johnson's Christmas card list, Julian. Um, well, you know, you have to do the right thing, don't you? And iconoclasts like me, like I suspect Dale, um, you know, we we do what we think is right. In terms of where this goes next, what is your, just a final point, Joe, your, your kind of legal instinct, your antennae, what is it telling you about the 31st of October? Well, I think there's been a lot of noise from 10 Downing Street, um, but I think they will now go quietly. Uh, I think Boris Johnson will uh, ask for an extension. Uh, the EU is very likely to grant it, and frankly, I think it's... Um, very remote indeed a possibility that um, we will no longer be a member of the European Union um, come the 31st of October. The real question is what can happen. Joe, we will speak again throughout the course of this series, I'm sure, but thank you. Joe Monkusi, um, you, you heard what he's been doing and mobilising along with uh, yourself, Dale. I mean, this is you would see this as absolutely vital work. So despite leaving the EU, you wanted to make sure that all the sort of legal uh, I's were, were dotted and T's were crossed. 
Yeah, from from my point of view, I, I think Brexit is a mistake. But this isn't what this court case is about. This court case is about preventing the worst kind of exit that we could have, the, the no-deal one that whereby we crash out on WTO terms um, and we endure these incredible shocks to our, our country, our economy. Um, you know, the Bank of England have said the rate of unemployment and the rate of inflation will double. There'll be a 5% hit to GDP. This is a bigger hit than in the financial crash of uh, 10 years ago, which led to a decade of austerity. The government's Yellowhammer report, which they tried to keep secret, says there will be food and medicine shortages. They expect riots in the streets. There's going to be chaos at the ports, that kind of stuff. We don't have to do this. It, it, it makes no sense to me to accept those impacts on ourselves uh, and the great hardship. And there's even talk of deaths due to lack of medicines. You know, uh, government's own advisors have told them this could happen. That that shouldn't be contemplatable. There's no reason for doing that at all, other than Boris Johnson had to promise it in order to make himself leader of the Conservative Party and through that, Prime Minister of our country. Before we finish this episode, uh, Dale, I think we should, uh, and maybe we'll make this a regular thing, a kind of a, a, a Trump take on matters um, environmental and to do with climate change. I mentioned at the beginning you built your first windmill in 1996, but you probably didn't realise then that it was going to be a complete waste of time um, doing any of that because the President of the United States has a theory about windmills, and here it is. If you have a windmill anywhere near your house, congratulations. Your house just went down 75% in value, and they say the noise causes cancer. You tell me that one, okay? You know, the thing makes it so... And, of course, it's like a graveyard for birds. He's the president, Dale. He knows stuff. He's like a wizard of the world. He's, he's got his eye on the ball here. It causes cancer and kills bald eagles. <laughs> he's, he's brilliant, isn't he? I mean, he, he, he's the gift that keeps on giving. Yeah, not wrong. I, I got started doing this in the early 90s. Built first windmill in 96, but I got started in about 91. And uh, we were the first people in the world to offer this new kind of energy, green energy made by windmills. It just didn't exist before. And so, you know, we are from that time used to a, a great deal of skepticism and even some ridicule. But, you know, that doesn't happen anymore. Trump sounds like he's living in the past because 20 years ago, opponents of wind energy would say they kill birds, interfere with pacemakers, ruin TV signals, all that kind of stuff. It's been thoroughly debunked. <laughs> I don't know. It's just a little bit unfortunate that he's like, you know, president of such a powerful country and that his words and deeds have really big consequences because otherwise he's he would make just simply great TV. Good man. That's it for this episode. Don't forget, of course, you can subscribe for free from your podcast provider so that you get each episode automatically. Don't forget to leave a review as well. This is the really important bit. Make sure you follow Dale on social media. He's on Twitter at Dale Vince or on Facebook, facebook.com slash Dale Vince. Until the next episode, goodbye. Zero carbon. East off.